Hello and welcome into a special episode of the CG Business Advisor brought to you by CG Tax Audit and Advisory. This is an important episode because it's our two-year anniversary. Yeah, it's hard to believe that we've been doing this podcast for two years already and a lot of the reason why it's lasted this long and it continues to progress is because of you, the audience. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening to each and every one of our episodes. And as always, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe, follow the podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. And for more information about CG Tax Audit and Advisory, head to cgteam.com. On this special two-year anniversary episode, we're going to feature some of our recent episodes, some of the interviews that you guys have had some incredible feedback on over the past several months. We'll be talking about special needs trusts, uh, choosing the right banker for you and your business, as well as using debt as an asset. And that's where we'll start. Anthony Villanova was our guest on this episode. He has owned and operated Villanova Financing Group LLC since 2003. And we had a very interesting conversation about why it's so important to understand debt structure and how you can use debt as a part of your financial planning. I want to start with debt structure. Why is it important to understand it? And how could you actually use debt as a part of your financial planning? Uh, debt, debt can be very important um, understanding cash flow. So if you understand cash flow and you understand liquidity, um, debt comes into that picture and can really fit into an overall financial plan. It, it's, it needs to be structured properly. You know, debt is debt, whether it's, it's uh, credit card debt, mortgage debt, car debt, student loan debt, it's, it's, it's all the same, but it's how you structure it. If you take um, credit cards and consolidate it into a, a mortgage loan, you're now taking interest that wasn't tax deductible, becomes tax deductible, and you could also eliminate a lot of the extra and excess interest that you're paying. So it's one area of consolidating debt to increase your cash flow. So if you're putting out you know, three, $4,000 a month trying to get ahead of the credit cards. And by consolidating that, it only costs you $400 a month. You're now freeing up, you know, thousands of dollars, $2,600 or so in cash flow. So you could use that money to either focus on paying down that debt now, or more importantly, if you work with a financial advisor or, you know, CPA, you can take that money and put it into other avenues, whether it be a retirement vehicle, um, you know, an investment vehicle, life insurances, disability insurances, something else that can uh, add some more protection in your life, as opposed to just having that other debt uh, that you're struggling to get ahead of. So understanding that structure is, is, is really what's important. And with um, a lot of clients that I have when they're buying a home, I often tell them if, if you don't have 20% to put down with a good cushion left over, you might as well just put down 5% because anything mm. in between there is kind of insignificant from a payment level. You know, for every $10,000 you put down on your home, it's going to change your monthly payment about $40. So if something next month broke or went wrong, would you rather have $10,000 in the bank or would you rather save $40 that? You know, it, it, it really gives you a lot of protection when you have that liquidity. 
I, what I tell them is you can always weather a storm when you have liquidity. And that's where understanding that debt structure comes into play. Especially, especially with the home, something always goes wrong with the home. Oh, of course. <laughs> and let's 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 focus on the real estate aspect for a second, because people use rental income to build equity, right, and to have that liquidity. Can you use your debt against that to help your financial position? Same concept. So, uh, with with clients I have that have investment properties, you know, I have a client today I spoke with. As a matter of fact, she has no mortgage on her home. Now there's upgrades she needs to do to the home. There's she's looking to buy maybe another investment property. So we look at what the debt servicing is, and you know, simple numbers. If 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 the rent she's collecting is two thousand dollars a month, well, you know, maybe we bring it up to around a thousand or fifteen hundred in in payments. So she still has a a cushion or a debt servicing level in there of around five hundred dollars a month. But now she's able to extract you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars that she could then use to do the upgrade she needs to do in the home, have some money put aside for emergencies, and maybe take that money to buy another investment property. You know, equity really has a, a, a return of zero, meaning if, if your home has no mortgage on it and it appreciates 5% next year, it appreciates 5%. It doesn't matter whether you have a mortgage or not, but if you have that money taken out and you borrow it at a you know, 4% interest rate, and that money is now used to buy, say, another home that then yields a 7 or 8% return, you know, your spread between those two is your, is your profitability. And it gives you the liquidity in case anything ever goes wrong. So that's where I guess a mortgage uh, and lending would come into being uh, in, in real estate investing, where you're utilizing that to then acquire more property. Correct. You could use it to acquire more property. You could use it to, again, same type of investment ideas. You could take that money, maybe max out a 401k. You could, you know, max out an IRA or, or whatever you may need, you know, and looking from the 401k standpoint, you know, if, if, if you take money again, borrow it at 4% and you max out your 401k with a portion of that money, well, it may cost you 4% to do that per year. But that year you just saved you know, 25, 30, 35% in taxes by offsetting that, that investment, plus the growth of the money market performance, which is a whole other, you know, idea as well. Reverse mortgages, good or bad? Um, like any product, good for the right situation. And um, what is the right situation? The situation I see the most is you usually have one person uh, still alive, you know, whether it's the, the, the father or the mother. You know, that's living in the home, usually no mortgage on the home. They're running out of money. They may have some type of in-home care and they don't want to sell. They don't want to move. And the siblings do not want to put them into a nursing facility. So at that point, you, you really don't have much of a choice. You could either refinance the home, but now you have to make mortgage payments and qualifying is difficult lots of times at that point if they're not working. Or you do the reverse mortgage. Reverse mortgage will give you about 50% of the equity of the home that you can now use to pay for that in-home care until you know, either they have to go into a nursing home or they pass on. And then at that point, the heirs would inherit the home. And like any other mortgage, they could sell the home, pay off whatever's owed and walk away with the difference if there's equity left in the home. If the home is underwater, 
meaning the mortgage is higher than the value of the home. All they'd have to do is turn it over to the lender, walk away. There's no recourse. No one's responsible for anything different. So in those situations is, is more times than not where I see them being utilized. And what would be a bad situation to use that? <clears throat> um, a bad situation would be if a client, I've had clients come to me and same situation, living in a home, needing home care. My first question always is, how long do you intend on staying in that home? And if they tell me five years or less, odds are it's not a good idea to do that reverse mortgage unless you truly have no other alternative. Mm -hmm. Because the equity is going to get eaten away during that time period. So when you go to sell, you will most likely have less money to use to go somewhere else. You know, so if, if the plan is to stay in that home until you pass on or 10 years plus, um, I usually kind of shy away from them doing the reverse at that point. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. you, you talked about having liquidity earlier and, and you know, for emergency cases, it, it, just re, just specify again how important it is to utilize your cash flow just in the event that something unexpected does happen. Uh, well, 2008 uh, is, could be the best example you know, that, that I give. I had a lot of clients during those years before 2008 that I advised, <clears throat> don't put down a lot of money, keep your money liquid. Um, don't do anything less than a 30-year loan. You know, when, when you lock into a 15 or 20 year loan, it sounds great an idea, I'm paying this off sooner, maybe my interest rate's a little lower, but you are now obligated for a much higher mortgage payment. The reality is a 30 year loan, you can pay in 20 years or 15 or 10 or any schedule you want, as long as you pay and send in the payment in accordance to that time frame. But the difference is if next month, I don't want to send in the 15 year payment, I can just send in the 30-year payment. But if I have a 15-year mortgage, I have no choice. I have to send in the 15-year payment. So if something goes wrong in life, you get sick, you get hurt, you lose your job. A global know, pandemic. Global pandemic. <laughs> yes, exactly. A mortgage meltdown. If you are in a 30-year loan with a mortgage payment you can handle, and it's your option whether you want to send more money and if you have a good amount of cushion, six months or longer in reserves, you can weather that period. And where, again, for every $10,000 you put down on a home, it's $40 you're saving. Yeah. So I guess that's where you could take advantage of certain government programs, uh, whether it's state or local, or state or federal, um, for really putting down as, as little as you can and things like that. Even just a regular mortgage market, you know, you can mm -hmm. get away with as little as three and a half percent down. So, you, you know, and on a refinance, you can pull out up to 80 percent of the value of the home. You know, so it, it, it gives you a lot of cushion to work with. You know, if, you, if you think of if you pull out three hundred thousand dollars and put it into a, you know, a, a safe investment vehicle, I'm not saying to go buy crypto with it, <laughs> you know, you put it in a safe investment vehicle with a competent financial planner, you're looking at $1,200 a month you'd have to put out. So if something goes wrong and you can't work, that 300,000 is gonna carry you a long time before you'd be in trouble. Absolutely. Uh, Anthony, great information. Uh, where can our listeners go to get in touch with you and for more information about your services? 
Uh, my website is uh, is villanovagroup.com. Uh, you can reach me in the office anytime, 973-921-0220. And my email is anthony at villanovagroup.com. He's not just a Wildcats fan, people. That is his last name, Anthony Villanova. It is, it is my last name. That's a fact. <laughs> Thanks so much, Anthony. You're very welcome. Thank you. Our next conversation is with Jacqueline Schinnerer. She started Commercial Capital Solutions, LLC, after being a senior vice president specializing in business development, credit structuring, relationship management, and leadership. After 20 years in commercial banking, Jacqueline talked to us about choosing the right banker for you and your business. Jackie, let's talk banking. Uh, if you're a company, you're entering the lending or your financing process, why is it so important to find the right banker and the right bank? Um, so important, right? And it's such a great question. Um, and in my view, it's really everything. So what I've seen in my 20 years, and I've worked on a lot of different deals for a lot of different companies, is that the wrong bank or advice or banker, um, or let's just say the one that's not best suited for the business owner's needs, can cost the business owner a lot of time, money, unnecessary burdens, higher borrowing cost, restrictive borrowing, missed opportunities, and just overall requirements, it's just not in their best interest. Um, you know, most of my history has been with a bank. And so when I went off on my own, I was really excited to explore this world of not only understanding what all these different banks provide, but also all these different alternatives and private credit and asset-based lenders. And, and what I found is that there's, there's over 25,000 banks, credit unions, and non-bank lenders in the United States, which is so overwhelming. And it's overwhelming for me. And I've done this for tw over 20 years. So, and then now you have to add this whole dynamic of fintechs. So I can only imagine how hard it is for a business owner to navigate all of this. You know, how, who do you know who to trust? How do you exit? How do they execute? You know, are they offering the best terms and structure and rate in the market? What do you know what's going on with the organization, right? And there's a lot of organizations and banks that are going through massive changes right now. And, you know, I think most importantly is like, how do you know somebody's going to support your needs today and tomorrow? And, you know, I get it. And that's why I started my company. So, you know, the way that I look at it is that we're an industry insider. We know what's going on. We give straightforward advice and we take a multitude of factors into consideration so clients can make a decision in their best interest. So, you know, it's just really difficult to go alone in this process. And business owners have, you know, quite frankly, way too much to worry about right now. And, you know, I'd like to also mention, you know, the, the overall process of finding the right bank and banker. And it really starts with, um, does a business fit conventional bank standards? Banks are notoriously conservative and some are more flexible than others. You know, banks will evaluate the use of capital, their industry, historical financials, cash flow, collateral, customers, suppliers, owners, existing debt. It's all very intensely scrutinized. And then now you have to factor in the PPP and EIDL loans, 
In addition, you've got COVID, supply chain issues, labor shortages, inflation, rising interest rates, and it's just added another layer of complexity and analysis to underwriting. And if any of these are not in alignment with a specific bank's credit policy, typically either that client is declined after months of back and forth, or what I see more often than not is they're just talking to the wrong bank and banker. Um, some of the other industry considerations that I see is that so many banks have non-performing assets or bad loans on the books because of COVID complications, and that may prevent them from doing any lending business at all unless it's for a high-performing existing customer or a new customer that fits perfectly within their box. And then if you don't fit within a bank guidelines, there are thousands of asset-based lenders, factors, purchase order finance, invoice finance, project finance, family offices, private debt placement, direct lenders, bridge, mezzanine, unsecured, hard money. All of them have different costs, structures, and underwriting criteria. And so really the search to find the right bank and banker is exhausting at best. Hmm. So that's why it's just so important to find the right people or have an expert guide you within that process. So you mentioned just the multitude of options that are out there. So uh, when you're shopping, because really that's what you're doing, when you're shopping around, uh, what kind of skills should you look for when you're deciding your partner? Yeah, absolutely. I thought it would be valuable to kind of discuss the organizational structure within banks, because I think that can kind of tie in skill sets that I hire for and I personally look for when I place a client. There's retail, there's business banking, there's middle market, and there's corporate. So it's important to know what group you're in and how you fit within the organization. All banks have different guidance on where to go um, and where to place you based on revenue, credit, treasury, international, and there's so many gray areas between all of these different groups within the bank. Some are really good at owner-occupied real estate. Some are really good at investor real estate. Some are great at SBA. Some are not. Some are great at equipment. Some are good at working capital and term loans. Some have better technology than others. Um, I also see some banks be really aggressive with clients that have significant deposit relationships that can be leveraged. Some have industry preference. Some stay out of industries altogether. Some just offer credit and don't require banking relationships. And there's a lot of factors and there's a lot of skill sets within each of these levels and especially within each run, each one of these underwriting um, capacities. And so it's going to look different organizationally within, within every single institution um, where I see a lot of mix up happening in the market is that larger businesses are serviced in retail or smaller divisions, smaller businesses are serviced within middle market, smaller businesses are with larger national banks that may not have a lot of emphasis on supporting them and larger businesses that have outgrown their smaller banks that have complex needs are needing to move up to a larger bank. And with all the things that have happened recently, there's a lot of movement in that area. Um, my opinion of being working on both coasts, being in the industry for 20 years, 
I really do believe good bankers and lenders are are out there. And I know a lot of them, but they're also really difficult to find. And as your credit and treasury and banking relationship get, get certainly more sophisticated, more complex, maybe a little bit larger, so should the skill set of the banker. But regardless um, of what division a banker works within, here are a couple of things that I really look for. I want to know that you've been with a bank a long time. There's a lot of bankers that move around every couple of years, and I want to know that I have somebody that has internal credibility. I also want to know that I'm working with somebody that has direct communication and strong reputation with the decision makers that sign off on credit. I also want to know that the bank and banker that I'm working with has a really good reputation within within the industry. They're proactive, they're responsive, they're organized, they understand the business and the industry, they can articulate your strengths, they know how and if possible to mitigate risk, and most importantly, they know how to move through their internal bank process. You know, there are so many steps coming from like a banker perspective of just how challenging it is and all the steps that are involved in getting a deal done. And so if you don't know how to do that or you're um, not proficient at doing that, there's going to be a lot of bottlenecks that are going to slow down the process for our clients. And so what we do at my company is that we ask a lot of questions. We want to know a client's business inside and out. We want to prepare them for the presentation because, you know, that's really going to impact the success of the client and it's really going to solicit the most competitive offer. You know, we know how to negotiate in a way to achieve the most advantageous outcome for a client. And another thing that I'll mention is I know a lot of really good bankers at, at institutions um, that unfortunately, maybe these institutions have an unreasonable credit mindset or they change credit appetite, and even the best bankers won't be able to execute for their clients if they're working under that type of um, you know, credit situation of, of just a bank not wanting to lend. There's a lot going on right now. Um, a lot of business owners I'm seeing are feeling strain in their banking relationship. They're either not being valued, supported, um, and then in many cases, the PPP with their existing institution um, was mishandled and it's opened up the movement. It's opened up an environment for movement and discussion within the market. Jackie, what kind of questions should you be asking your potential banking partner? Um, so some of the questions that I typically ask uh, my potential my potential bankers that I work with is, you know, what group do they work with within the bank? How long they've been in banking? How long they've worked there? What size of revenue clients do they work with? What's your typical credit terms and limits? How long is the approval process? And what are all the steps? Who approves uh, the loan or the line of credit? After reviewing my financial package, what do you think? If, if there's no questions um, after this question that you ask your banker, I typically think it's a red flag. Um, it just shows me that they're just taking information and they're going to let somebody else go through that information without being able to advocate on your behalf. Um, are there any concerns that you have? What type of industries do you manage within your portfolio? What is the renewal process like? Who covers you when you're out? Where's your servicing team located? Do I have to move my full banking relationship? Can I see a demo of your technology and online banking platform? 
what are your banking fees based on my activity and technology um, that I need to support my business? What is that going to cost me? There's just, there's so many questions to ask dependent on the situation and where, what, where a client fits in. And so, you know, I typically have my network nationally of bankers I go to bankers that I know and trust. And if I'm presenting a situation for my client, and if I have any indication that there's going to be an issue and somebody can't answer these questions in a way that um, I feel they should be answered or I'm comfortable with, then I typically, you know, will move on to someone else in my network that I think is a, that that's a better fit for a client. You know, in terms of the information providing a banker, timing is really critical. Um, I would 100% say that you need to plan in advance. You know, they always say that banks are great at lending money when you don't need it. <laughs> so, you know, have a conversation with an expert before you go out to lenders to ensure your end goal is achievable. You know, I, I do find a lot of people, um, they just don't know what's out there. And I think talking to an expert that can tell them what's available in the market and set the right expectations is incredibly important because the last thing that you want to do is like go through this whole process and find out that it's really not that much better than what you've got right now, or they can't meet your need. And so I want to do a lot of that work for clients on the onset. Um, but you know, you need to have all your financial documents ready to go. You want, um, a current, you know, within 90 days internally prepared is fine. You want an income statement balance sheet. You want three years of business and personal tax returns or financial statements. You want an account receivable account payable and inventory aging report. You want a statement of net worth or personal financial statement for the owners, which includes all assets and liabilities. And, you know, there's certainly other things that are going to come up. If it's a business acquisition, an asset purchase, a real estate request, there's going to be other documentation to consider. But the documentation that I just spoke about should be enough, along with understanding your request and what you're trying to accomplish, to be able to give you an indication of, you know, is there an interest to do this? What type of rate, term, and structure, and fees, um, how this is going to look overall, and I think that, you know, what's most important is just, you're just organized. And when you send a banker a package, you got to make sure that you understand everything that's in that package. You understand all the financials. Being on top of your documentation is step one and it builds credibility. You know, I, I, I do see this is that, and it happens a lot. Um, good lenders and bankers typically aren't going to chase you down for documentation um, especially if it's somebody that's not completing a renewal or they're not an existing client, this is a brand new client, they're just going to move on, right? Because good bankers are so hard to find, you know, they're, they're, they have other clients to work with, right? And so you want to make it really easy for them to not only get your deal done, but offer you really competitive pricing. And so having all of your documentation together, knowing your business inside and out, being upfront with uh, maybe weaknesses that you perceive because a lender is definitely going to dig into that and you need to demonstrate that you have a handle on it. Um, so, you know, a lot of our clients ask us to get involved in putting everything together. So it's presented in the right way, you know, under our guidance of what the best way to do that. So is your banker your biggest advocate in your entire financing process? Great question. You are your biggest advocate you know, you advocating for your business and being passionate about your business is most important. 
I think it's really important if you know that you fit within your bank guidelines before you go to a bank to save yourself a lot of time and effort. Um, I think it's really important to know what's reasonable in terms of lending rates and structure and talk to an expert around that. Um, but, you know, I kind of look at myself as being the biggest advocate for my clients. And because I have relationships with hundreds of different lenders and kind of a pathway to decision makers, you know, I can make that process um, much easier for clients based on like the traditional way that you would go out to find financing. But along with myself, because in many situations, while I do believe that the banker and the banking team that I pull in is going to advocate for my client, you know, sometimes I have to push them, right? Or sometimes I have to say like, hey, what are we doing with this? Or why hasn't this been done? But I would definitely say that your banker and team is an advocate for you um, and it takes a village, right? And so it shouldn't just be your banker. You know, I would want to know like, who's your management team and who else is there to support you? And so, you know, it's not just solely one person that you have advocating for you. You know, you have a whole banking team that's trying to help you, you know, throughout the process. What happens if there's changes in your bank? Like what if your bank merges or, or something else happens? There is so much of that going on right now. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. Um, you know, I would say um, there could be some really big cause for concern. You know, banks merge all the time. And typically I see that it creates a significant change for customers so what ends up happening is management teams, maybe bankers that knew you really well and that you had a relationship with and you felt um, was strongly your advocate, um, they could be displaced, they could be um, assigned to a different team, or they could leave because maybe they don't agree with you know the new culture or um, the new management team that's going to be in place. And so you've got mixing of internal cultures they may have loved your industry. Maybe they really liked investor real estate and they don't do that anymore. Um, you know, maybe they're trying to get out of certain business, get into other type of business, which could really leave certain clients. I mean, you hear about it all the time. You know, my, my bank goes in and out of these businesses and you don't even have to merge to see a lot of changes in that. Um, your servicing team could change how you're, how you're um, treated within the organization could change. You could find yourself working with an entirely different team, one that's completely and totally unfamiliar with you and that there's just not a good fit. Um, but, you know, and in most cases, when like a merger happens, everybody is overwhelmed, right? And it could take years to work through. So, even when you're going to the people that you consider to be your advocates with the, within the bank, a lot of their response might be for a very long time, we just don't know. Um, and, you know, I've witnessed a lot of mergers, um, you know, and I, I've seen some things happen with, with client relationships, but I do believe that's really, it's, that's why it's so important that you have um, other bankers or intermediaries like myself or experts that can help you if you get to a point where you're realizing that this bank merger is not in your business and not in your best interest and you need to move on. So you told us a little bit already about what you uh, provide your clients. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about commercial capital solutions as well as where our listeners can reach out to you. Sure. So 
uh, Commercial Capital Solutions was started by me after 20 years um, in the industry. And I just got really tired of telling telling clients that I knew that there was something there. Um, No, we can't help you. No, I don't know. I'm sorry. You're going to have to talk to somebody else. And, you know, I wanted to be able to help clients with a variety of needs, whether they fit within a bank, they fit within an alternative. And so really what we do is we, we advise, we navigate, we secure commercial financing for small to medium-sized businesses and real estate investors. We've pre-qualified hundreds of lenders. We know where to go, what to say, how to position our clients in an accurate and positive light. Um, you know, I just really felt that clients need an independent expert to go through. Um, and that's where we come in. We underwrite the financial package. We discuss how to mitigate risk up front. We interview the client. We present the clients to the right lenders the right way. We negotiate terms. We monitor the process through closing. And in some cases, we do need to pivot and we need to take another route and go some, you know, go a different direction. And, and really, you know, we view our clients as, um, being able to also provide to them ongoing financial and advisory services. And if anybody wants to reach me, typically the best way is through email, which is JS, my initials, JS at commercialcapital.solutions. Or you can also find me, uh, Jacqueline, J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E, Schinnerer, S-C-H-I-N-N-E-R-E-R on LinkedIn. Great. Thank you so much, Jackie. I appreciate all the information and the insight. And uh, we'll talk to you on our next episode where we're going to get into a topic about the financing process. Terrific. Thank you. Our next conversation is with Christine Mattis, a top special needs lawyer here in New Jersey at the Mattis Group. Christine and her dedicated team of professionals and special needs attorneys focus on providing exceptional legal advice in the areas of special needs planning, as well as elder law, real estate law, and estate law. And here was our conversation on special needs trusts. Let's talk about special needs trusts. Why are they so important in future planning? So there's a number of reasons why you should consider this. And basically, it's a tool. And it could do a number of things. So in special needs planning, one of the main objectives when we have this type of tool is number one, protecting benefits for our loved ones. A lot of people who are special needs, who are disabled, different needs. There's many ways to uh, use the category, the word. So I always try to be all inclusive. Uh, A lot of them are on what they call means tested benefits. And those are benefits that you can only get when you have a certain amount of assets. And most likely right now, they're very low. Typically, you can only have, and again, this is just a generalization. There's a little bit of exceptions here and there. No more than $2,000 worth of assets in your name. It's so low and it's so hard to get these benefits, Scott. So what we do is that we create these tools so that you don't get disqualified, you don't ruin your eligibility, and you can still experience a better lifestyle. For example, if you were to receive an inheritance, if it's more than $2,000 without this type of planning tool, you're going to lose benefits. So we create a tool to make sure you have the best of both worlds, benefits and inheritance or other types of assets. So it's really good for planning and just to elevate and enhance their lifestyle. 
Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, so how does this work? How does the special needs trust work? So again, you know, a trust is a tool. So think of it as a box and whatever I put in that box, I can do a lot of things with it. So in this situation, and I'll give you a little bit of background. So I have two children, Emma's 14, Juliana is 12 and Juliana was born with Down syndrome. So as a result, that's why I dedicated a large portion of my practice to helping families like myself. And so when we discovered that Juliana has this condition, we really want to think about how can we protect her? So we found out about this tool called a trust and a trust could be created and you typically really should go to a firm that does a lot of these. You don't want to go to a firm that does maybe one or two a year. You want mm -hmm. to make sure they're doing hundreds of them because it's very complicated, Scott. There's a lot of rules and sometimes the wrong phrasing in that trust can really ruin everything. So you would go to a law firm like ourselves and we would create paperwork that would now cre create the trust. And in that trust, we can say what's going in it. It could be assets, it could be property. And what will happen is that we have to update the name of those assets to put something in it. So in my example, we have the supplemental needs trust of Juliana, that's my daughter. When you have this type of trust, then say I have life insurance. If she's my beneficiary, I cannot have her name as a beneficiary. I can't have Juliana. I have to have the supplemental needs trust uh -huh. Juliana. So that's how you fund a trust. And really by creating it, it's paperwork, but it has a lot of important lingo to make sure we don't disqualify our loved one from benefits. That makes a lot of sense. Are there different kinds of trusts? Yeah, believe it or not, there are three kinds of trust. There's something called a third-party trust, something called a first-party trust, and there's something also as a pooled trust. So the most popular kinds that we help families with and that I have for myself, for my daughter, it's called the third-party trust. They have it called third-party. Why? Because you look at where are the funds coming from? They're coming from another source not from our loved one. It's not Juliana's money. It's coming from a third party and typically myself and uh -huh. my husband. So that's one. The good thing about that type of trust, Scott, is that there's no payback. It's very, very important. What do you mean payback? Well, a lot of these trusts have a clause that God forbid our loved one dies and there's money left in the box, money left in that trust. Well, the state can take it. They take the balance. But in a third party trust, they cannot. There is no third party clause. And it's very, very important because there's many times we're reviewing trusts that have been made from other sources. I'm not sure where, um, but we'll see this clause in there and we know it's a third party. We're like, why is that in here? Let's take that out. <laughs> you don't need to have the government involved. Mm. There's also a trust called the first party trust. And that's when the money is already our loved one, like Juliana, like God forbid she was in a car accident. And she has pain and suffering and she gets an award. Well, if that award is more than $2 million, we're going to lose our benefits. So what do we do? Come to us. We build that tool. We build that trust. But here's where the difference is, Scott. It does have a payback. Why? Well, they're saying because it's her money and those are just the rules. So if God forbid something happens to that loved one with a first party trust, the balance typically goes to the government. It's just the rules. and It's that kind. For example, child support, that's also a first party trust, right? We have a lot of clients, unfortunately, you know, if their parents are going through a divorce, but child support is going to be awarded, again, if it's going to amount to more than $2,000, 
we're going to have a problem. So we got to create that tool. The third type of special needs trust is called a pooled trust. And these are a type of trust where there are a number of accounts that are in one account. And we typically see that when we don't have large numbers, right? If it's numbers um, that are pretty low that we want to give our loved one, it's still more than 2,000, but really nothing significant enough. Sometimes it's a little bit too complicated or it could be costly to have someone manage it for you for, for such a small amount of money. So we go to organizations, typically they're nonprofits, and they'll say, hey, we'll help. We'll manage the funds. They're put in one big account, but we'll still know what was your account for your loved one. But again, the rub is, God forbid our loved one passes away. Whatever's left in that account stays with that nonprofit, right? We can't designate the balance to go to whoever. In my situation that we created for my daughter, the third party, if God forbid something happens to my daughter, um, to my daughter and there's money left in that trust, I can designate the balance to go to my other daughter or to a mm. charity or to whoever. So that's really the luxury. If you can build that trust while you're alive now, I really, really highly recommend it because then we avoid the payback. Yeah. That's really important. That's fantastic. Uh, so what can you use the special needs trust for? Can you use it for medical benefits or, or any other services? Yes, and that's a great question. That's probably one of the most popular and complicated questions and answers that we get. Depending on the type of trust, and depending on the type of benefits our loved one receives, it really determines what you can use the money for. Overall, the money has to be for the benefit of our loved one. We can't be using the money to go on vacations with a whole lot of people. We can use it for our loved one and maybe pay for one other person to go with them. There was a case law where someone was using the trust money to go on vacation, plus bringing eight other people. <laughs> no, they didn't like that. So that was a problem. And what happens? They want you to pay it back. They were threatening you're going to lose benefits. So you have to be careful. The other thing is that if our loved one is receiving SSI, right, that mm -hmm. is supplemental security income, that's being used towards food and shelter. That's just the rule of thumb. So if we have a trust, we can't use it for food and shelter. They'll think you're double dipping. And there's things that you can do to, you know, help our clients if that's the situation, but they have to be well aware of typically it's a no-no. And there are, I hate to use the word penalties, but there are consequences if we do it. Sometimes they're okay. You know, I've had clients where we do it and the consequences aren't that bad. Everybody is different. Everything is a case by case nature, but you can use it for vacations. You can use it to buy your iPad, your computers, buy a car, buy a house. So there's quite a number of things you can buy it with, but you just have to be well-versed in what kind of benefits you have and what kind of trust you have. You mentioned earlier about uh, inheritance, um, but as far as estate planning goes, how do you incorporate the special needs trust? If you could just elaborate on that. Sure. So when we help uh, clients build for the future, we're like creating an estate plan. So an estate plan usually consists of what happens when we die. So when we die, we would like to know where do our assets go? And you can designate people. But it's very important that we don't use the name of our child in our estate planning. We have to use the trust name, yeah. right? Because if we use their name solely, it causes confusion. It causes issues. Um, and again, there's always a solution to everything. But sometimes it's expensive to fix. Sometimes it's 
you know, stressful to fix. So we've always said to clients, if you're going to get an estate plan done, I mean, sometimes, Scott, it's so interesting. We'll get calls from people say, I just want the trust. I don't want anything else. I said, no, but we got to do the whole thing. We, I wish I could say, I, I just want mm-hmm. the brakes. I don't need the tires and I don't need the car. I said, no, you, you need the whole thing. <laughs> so, um, but it's part of the plan. So you can place it in documents like a will um, or other trusts that, but whenever there's a reference to our loved one, you want to make sure you have the full name of the trust in there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense there. Um, do the parameters vary from state to state? Slightly, they do. But for the most part, they all carry the same um, rules of what we need to be doing, what the purpose of the trust is for. So it's very important that, you know, if you're in New Jersey and you're moving to another state, and we've had this quite a number of times, we love to connect our clients to the attorneys that we know in each state. And we have a very, very good network of attorneys that we work with. You know, special needs planning is not that big of an arena of attorneys. It's a very specialized area. So we practically know of each other and can find each other pretty quickly. So we typically will make the connection. So for example, we had a client moving to Texas. So we made a connection with a firm in Texas. We wanted them to take a look at the trust that we made in Jersey. They said there was a few tweakings that needed to be made, but overall it was good. So you always want to make sure um, because each state has their own rules of how things are executed, certain phrasing that you need to put in there. Um, So you do need to make sure that when you move, you do you know, meet local counsel who also specializes in this type of uh, law. So how would a supplemental needs trust differ? Okay. To, for, from this. And that is a great question. So it typically describes the type of trust. So supplemental needs trust is typically in reference to the third party trust funds that are coming from another party. And the big reason we're using that word is because the money in the trust is to supplement, is to enhance our loved one's lives. It's not to take place of the benefits. It's not to supplant the benefits. And that's where we need to be very clear. So we'll have benefits, we'll receive money from our governmental benefits. And in addition, we have money in the trust and they should work together and not use one versus the other. That's that's really it. So like, for example, if I have trust money, I'm not gonna be using that for my food, or for my rent, knowing I also get SSI money, because then they're thinking you're double dipping and they could could just say, you know what? You don't need the benefits. You got a great trust here. But knowing some of our loved ones, we're gonna run through that trust money like anything. So we need to have both. We need, but when you use the word special needs trust, you're typically referring to the first party trust where the money is already theirs. So how do you set up a special needs trust? What's the first step? So the first step is that, you know, when you contact a firm that you know has done a lot of these, you need to make an appointment, talk to with that firm, and they will ask you questions. The first thing we always want to know is really what's, how is our loved one? We don't know how they're doing. What can they do? I know from my point of view, um, there's lots of benefits that we could apply for. And all the questions are always, what can't they do? And it's very depressing. And it really brings me down, to be quite honest. So I love to start out, well, how are they? How are they doing? And I do want to know what their condition is. And then we find out what kind of benefits. Once I know the type of benefits you have, then we can really find out, is a trust the best tool for your loved ones? Because not only can it be used to protect benefits, but it can also be used to protect our loved one from predators who want to take advantage of them because they may not be able to manage money on their own. And unfortunately, we're in that type of world 
where people try to look for those who are indefensible and who can be taken advantage of, but the trust can control that situation. Tell us more about the services that you offer at the Mattis Law Group. So here at the Mattis Law Group, not only do we help families that have a loved one who's disabled, but we help really all families who are concerned about protecting their legacy, protecting the future. Um, You may have issues about taxes, and we want to make sure that when you pass away, your loved ones inherit as much as possible. So we love doing what they call estate planning, right? We plan for the unexpected. The other half of our firm is real estate. Quite frankly, they go hand in hand. A lot of our clients who are putting things in their trust, who are giving things to their loved ones, comprises of real estate. That's probably some of the biggest assets that we have. So it just turned into a whole new department. Not I wouldn't say new, but it's a whole department on its own. So we do a lot of buying and selling of residential property, commercial properties as well. So we love to help our families with that. And when we say we help them with estate planning and special needs, it also means probate, that when they pass away, we also try to help the families guide them and making sure everything falls into place, that the will is respected or the trust is respected. Um, And we also help clients if they're alive, but maybe unable to do things on their own. And that may be for guardianships, whether it's because they're older or because they do have a disability where they won't be able to do things on their own. But that's really what we do. We love to help our families and especially those uh, that have a special needs individual. Where can our listeners go to get in contact with you or just uh, discuss this further? So the easiest way would probably look into our website, www.mattislaw.com. It has all our info. We have three offices. We have office in Tom's River, Red Bank, and in New York City. So we really would love to see what we can do to help our families. Um, We have a great team here, eight really passionate individuals who really want to focus on our families and just make sure they're taken care of. And even if we may not be able to help, we always lead you in the right direction. I can't thank you enough. This topic, Christine, is great. Uh, The information was fantastic. And uh, I hope uh, the listeners that, you know, uh, this applies to especially got a lot out of it and hopefully we'll be contacting you. Thank you so much, Scott. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to our special look back at some of our most recent successful episodes over the past several months as this is our two-year anniversary episode. As always, for more information about CG Tax Audit and Advisory, head to cgteam.com. And don't forget, follow the podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, this is the CG Business Advisor. 